really putting something back together to be able to do that you also need to understand that you can't have everything um so it's just like in design there's always some compromise and so what's key to reconstruction is knowing what matters to you and putting them at the top of your list and then being okay with some of the things that you won't be able to do and the way you make peace with that is um, understanding that um, nothing in design is fixed. The Giant Thinkers. Giant Thinkers Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm Ram Castillo, and in this podcast, I'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers, creatives, and giant thinkers. G'day, Giants. Ram here. Welcome to episode number 52. Today's guest is the co-founder and creative director of Bursal and Sec the award-winning design and innovation studio working with clients including Herman Miller, GE, Colgate-Palmolive, Ikea, and Toyota. She's a highly experienced and sought-after New York-based designer, is the creator of Design the Life You Love, a book and coursework that teaches designers and non-designers how to create a meaningful life using her design process, Deconstruction, Reconstruction. Fast Company identified her as one of the world's most creative people and is on the Thinkers 50 radar list of the 30 management thinkers most likely to shape the future of organizations. Some of the topics we spoke about include her secret love for karate, the most rewarding projects of her career, from toilet seats to car interiors to office spaces and office furniture, how she handled the global financial crisis when clients no longer engaged her for work, and what a meaningful future really means. If you're someone that's ever been interested in using a design process to design the life you love, then this episode is for you. Now, before we begin, I highly recommend you take note to check out Treehouse. I've mentioned this before in other podcast episodes. I'm a huge fan. Treehouse is an online technology school that offers courses in web design and coding from HTML, CSS, PHP to JavaScript, Python, and iOS in the space of web, mobile, and game development, taught by a team of in-house expert teachers. It's an on-demand learning platform so you can learn at your own pace and become job ready within as little as six months. There are over a thousand high quality video courses, interactive tools, and a huge supportive community of students on Treehouse. One of my personal favorite features is that you can practice what you've learned through quizzes and interactive code challenges. This style of practicing will allow you to retain information so you can apply it to your own future projects or even build out a professional portfolio. Giants, if you remember on episode 38, when I interviewed the chief creative officer of Media, Steve Babcock, his answer when I asked him if he could travel back in time and speak to his younger self was, 
uh, I would tell him to go to major in computer science. Wow. There you go. I really, if I could, go, you know, everyone's always like, no regrets. No, if I could go back in time, I would be, I would have learned how to code. Wow. And, you know, the Gary V part of me is like, you could still do it. Dedicate half your day to this. And I'm like, eh, no, I'm not going to get it. I feel like, you know, um, but like, man, that to me, if I would have known then how much power and ability in, in creation in today's world that would be, like to understand that language and to be able to code, because I'm always, it's not a shortage of like ideas, like, oh, this would be a great app, or this would be a really awesome service and a, and a site to make and da, 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 da. And I just wish that I could be so, I wish I could just make that stuff. Now, the beautiful thing is that you don't even need a computer science degree to code and become a developer. What you do need are the foundational skills and a portfolio of projects that show what you can do. Treehouse teach the specific skills that are sought after by businesses around the world and relevant in today's economy. I encourage you to check out giantthinkers.com slash treehouse. They're giving the Giant Thinkers community a seven-day free trial so you can try it out with no commitment. On top of that, if you're happy with the trial and thereafter continue learning on Treehouse, let me know and I will personally give the first five students a one-hour Skype call coaching session each for free. So if you'd like to learn how to code, if you're interested in becoming a developer and are after the skills to get a job as one, head to giantthinkers.com slash treehouse, T-R-E-E-H-O-U-S-E. Alrighty, let's get stuck into it. Get cozy and strap yourself in. I present to you the optimistic, imaginative, and purpose-driven Aisha Bursal. Aisha Bursal, welcome to the Giant Thinkers podcast. I'm a huge fan of you and your work. How are you doing today? Thank you, Ram. I'm delighted to be here. It's uh, great to have you on. You mentioned you've got uh, some family over. We're doing this recording uh, creeping up to Thanksgiving in the States, isn't it? Yes, it's my favorite holiday. And so my aunt is here from Turkey and then... Today was the last day of school this week for my kids, so we're happy. Beautiful. So first off, uh, Aisha, I have an icebreaker question for you. If you were an Olympic athlete, what sport would you compete in? Wow, I love that. Um, so I would want to compete in karate. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes, chop chop. <laughs> That's cool. Any particular reason? Are you a fan of the yes, sport? Yes, yes, yes. I love karate. And when my kids were younger, still they were four and five. I thought I we have two girls, and I thought you know they should learn how to protect themselves. So I signed them up for a karate class, and then watching them, I thought this is such a beautiful sport. I would love to try it. And the teacher said, well, why don't you try it? I have an adult class next hour. And I was like, oh, no, you know, I'm too old for this. And he's like, no, you're trying it. So I tried it. I fell in love with karate and really understood what being in the moment is. Because when you do karate, you're, you know, you're in the present moment and you're like a warrior. So it really helped me build up courage um 
just even for my work, like courage for life. And um, and my biggest regret is I stopped after three years and just couldn't get back into it. And I'm still looking for a door to get back into it. So I would have loved to do it so well that I could compete in the Olympics. Oh, wow. That's that's amazing. Well, first of all, three years. Congratulations. That's that's uh, no small feat. And secondly, fun fact, my father actually uh, was a three Dan black belt champion in the Philippines, um, where I'm originally from. So I can certainly appreciate uh, the lessons learned. He always refers back to his learnings um, in karate um, as lifelong lessons for for everything he tackles in life, um, especially the discipline and the restraint as well. Yes, yes, yes. I um, for all those reasons, I love karate. That's fantastic. I'm glad. I'm glad that uh, that fun fact came came out of the woodwork. So Aisha. Where would you say your expertise lies? My expertise is in design. I um, ask people um, what their telos is, and telos is like your your purpose, your use. And so, an example is like a knife. A knife's telos is cutting, and Aisha's telos is design. <laughs> Very cool. And um, to give us a bit of story um, and context around how you got into design and the amazing work that you've produced and the things that you're doing now, can you tell us uh, a little bit about your childhood and how you grew up? Yes, I was a funny kid. I was a city kid. I um, thought that I don't think I realized I was a kid. (laughs) <laughs> for a long time I just thought I was kind of all capable I can do anything kind of person and I loved um, I grew up by the Mediterranean I grew up in Turkey uh, in a port city by the name of Izmir by the Aegean and I love the Aegean that's kind of my um, soul connection and I loved my grandparents who thought I could do no wrong. And um, and the connection to what I do today, I think, um, started, you know, where I live, um, where, I, where I grew up in Izmir. We were close to Ephesus, which is this one of the oldest cities in the world and um, it has beautiful Greek and Roman ruins. And when I was a kid on weekends, my parents would take us on picnics and then we would go to Ephesus and we would walk through the ruins and I would be completely bored. And I didn't understand the, why we would kind of walk around in these broken marble streets and among these marble columns it made no sense to me. And so very well one day my dad said look you know this is this was the marketplace and we were walking on a path that was all paved in marble and it had these kind of lines marks that were made in the marble parallel lines and he said you see those those are the marks of the chariots so imagine the chariot imagine the horses imagine the marketplace and i think that's when i started imagining stuff 
imagining things that didn't exist. And um, so that was my childhood. And I loved reading books and I loved to draw. And I grew up in a family of lawyers and um, almost became a lawyer and then took the uh, road less traveled to become a designer. Very cool. I, I loved uh, what you said as well about um, you didn't really uh, feel like you were a kid in, in that you uh, thought that you could do it all and, and, and you know, take on um, take on the world. And what do you think got you to that um, point of view? Was it your parents' influence or your surroundings? How did you arrive at feeling that way at such a young age? You know, Ram, I don't know. I think maybe all kids are like that and we don't realize it. But I remember distinctly, like, one time I was walking to school and, um, you know, Izmir was a small city at the time and, you know, I had like a 15, 20 minute walk. I was in third grade, so I must have been like seven years old. And it was springtime. And there was this on the way, there was the um, French um, language school, Alliance Francaise. And um, I knew it had a beautiful garden in the back. And for some reason, I decided to take a detour, go into the garden in the back. The garden was wild. It was all kind of full of weeds and spring flowers. And there were these um, red um, ladybugs just flying around. It was that kind of a day. And I kind of ran around in that garden. And then I was like, this is beautiful. And then I went back and went back to my normal route and went to school and thought nothing of it. And to me, that's like the, that's like me, you know? <laughs> yeah. And there was no sense of like, am I doing something wrong or, you know, I'm supposed to be at school. And it was, and it was a beautiful day and it was a beautiful moment with these red ladybugs. And I don't think I even realized that like, if my mother knew she would have a heart attack. It was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have, you know, I often now more than ever look back at those moments and think to myself, gosh, they were, they were so rare. You know, the amount of time that I think back that, you know, I wish I could do a bit more play or make time or um, make as in making something or, um, without any constraints. Um, but we'll, yes. we'll, we'll tackle into this whole thing a little bit uh, more throughout, um, especially with, with everything that you have written about and spoken about um, but I want to fast track to the now. And when you look back over your entire career, what are some of your most proudest and most rewarding design projects to date? Oh, yeah, that's really um, a good way for me to think about what, ha what have I done in the last um, 30 years? And kind of like the things that really pop up in my mind are one is um, designing a toilet for Toto um, in Japan. And uh, I'm really proud of that because I, um, I call it my military service, living in Japan as a foreigner, a designer, a young woman 
I was everything that people were against. And I was, you know, trying to change um, this design into something very different and innovative and um, against all odds, because like, who was I to know it um, challenging Japanese engineers and of very successful product. So I'm really proud of that, that um, I just uh, had the force and the courage to drive that project forward and get it to market. Um, sometimes I look back and think, wow, I, um, I was more courageous when I was um, in my 30s. And then... Um, my other project is the Resolve project, the Resolve office system with Herman Miller, because that was such an incredible opportunity. I mean, um, not many opportunities like that show up where you're asked to design a whole office system and really turn old solutions on their heads. So I felt very fortunate to have that opportunity. And then the... Um, I just want to separate what's my proudest and then my, what's my most rewarding because my most rewarding project was um, doing designing a, an interior, an automobile interior for Renault, the French automobile manufacturer, because that's the project where I met my husband and partner, Bibisek. So that, um, in the long term, that was the best project. Uh, it changed my life. Fantastic. Um, I loved how you you broke that down. Um, going a little bit further, the toilet. So what was the, I guess, new thought or idea that they were against? Oh, so many things. <laughs> really? Okay. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. It, um, so, you know, I was there uh, living in Tokyo first, and then once the concept was developed, um, they said, well, now you need to go to Kokura the, um, in the island of Kyushu, where um, Toto's headquarters were and their factory was. And they said, now you're going to work with the engineers and, you know, turn this into a real product. And I arrived and I met these engineers, all men, uh, and I said, you know, we're going to make the seat larger because, um, you know, a toilet seat is just like a chair. When you sit in it, um, you should be comfortable and it shouldn't bite into the back of your leg. So it shouldn't just be a cover for the toilet. It should be large enough, like an ergonomic seat. And, um, and by the way, it should be, um, you know, most toilet seats, um, that Toto made at the time were hollow. I said, this really doesn't speak quality. It should be solid plastic. And by the way, we should be able to take it off, you know, the seat and the lid so that you can wash it under the um, faucet and put it back on again. And there, and there were some other things like that. And they were like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean? No. I'm like, mm. they sent me here to do this. They were like, well, you don't know what you're talking about, basically. Wow. Um We've been doing this for so many years and you just started and that's not how this is going to go down. We can't do the seat like that. We can't make it, um, you know, demountable or like can't take it off and put it back on. And who's heard of solid, you know, plastic seats? Anyways, 
So what I did is, and the list I think was longer. So there were like seven or eight things on it that um, they said no to. And I was like, I thought to myself, well, this is such a waste. I came, you know, at the time I was living in New York and I had moved to Tokyo and to Kokura for this project. And I, and it was like my dream project. And I thought this is such a waste. You know, they're paying me and they they don't want to make what I designed. Um, and then I will have nothing to show for my time and for this design that I thought was really um, a good idea. So I wrote to the person who hired me back in Tokyo, and he was the um, one of the executives, the third person after the CEO. And I said, well, you hired me and none of your engineers want to accept the design, yet you approved the design. So anyways, um, something happened. And two days later, we had another meeting and they said yes to everything. <laughs> He's cracked the whip. Something <laughs> happened. And you know, what's amazing with um, my experience in Japan is once they say yes, they go 100%. Mm. It's yes all the way. So um, I'm really grateful to them for kind of um, then going all in. Yeah. And there's this fantastic opportunity that was presented to you. And it's often not easy to keep that opportunity alive as well. You know, you've really got to voice your vision and your, um, your concept to the, to the point of you know, you you really believe in what you're um, what you're wanting to create. You really um, stood up for your ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I've softened up since. Yeah, but you know, it's this is the type of stuff that we need to hear as well. You know, the the battles are not easy when it comes to um, being a designer and 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 really being intimate with the problem and then presenting a solution right so um yes. i love that uh can you touch on a little bit on the herman miller um job that you mentioned um i i love herman miller i have visited the headquarters in holland west michigan twice and I've, you did yeah i've delivered two talks there at herman miller um, how did i miss you there i know we, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> right, so you have to come back. I, I will. I have a, yeah, um, West Michigan and, and Michigan as a whole has a, has a big place in my heart. I've stayed in Grand Rapids and, um, I have interviewed Steve Frick home as well, who's, um, now become a, a great friend of mine. Very cool. Yeah. So, so there's, there's some connections Lovely. there. Yeah. Um, when I walked into the headquarters, I was just so blown away. So, Note to listeners, if you ever get a chance to check out the Herman Miller headquarters, please do so. So Aisha, what did you do in that project that you mentioned for Herman Miller? So the Herman Miller project, um, if I may give you a little bit of kind of before resolve story, um, I was introduced to Herman Miller by Ralph Kaplan, one of my heroes and the author of By Design if um, your listeners haven't read Ralph, um, I would highly recommend By Design. Um, 
it's very humorful and does a brilliant job of explaining what design is. So Ralph introduces me to the folks at Herman Miller and they somehow like the way I think. And so they gave me a, a three-month project, kind of like a test project. And um, I did that. And at the end of the project, um, I thought I had some brilliant ideas, of course, but they said no. And I couldn't believe it. And I was just so um, disappointed in myself. And I thought, I mean, I thought about this for such a long time. I just couldn't get over the the failure of having the chance to work with Herman Miller and that I lost it, that, you know, whatever I did wasn't good enough. And they said, don't worry, we'll call you back. And I was like, of course, they're not going to call me back. You know, <laughs> there's no way. But they did call me back. Um, it was about a year later and they said, well, we have a new project and I couldn't believe it. And they said, will you come in and um, talk to us? And I did. And that was the beginning of Resolve. And uh, they were interested in um, cubicles at the time, which Herman Miller had um, invented um, and, you know, almost every office in the States was using cubicles, but cubicles had become a commodity. They weren't able to compete on it. And so they thought, you know, we'd like to have a fresh look at this. And so that that was the beginning of Resolve. And, and they didn't quite know whether this should be a cheaper, lighter version of a cubicle or whether this should be a completely new idea. So it wasn't, they weren't sure if this should be an evolution or a revolution. But they did something that was interesting. They said, we would like you to um, get 50% of the cost off to come up with an idea that would cut cost by 50%. And I thought, aha, they just told me that this is a revolution because there's nothing I can take off of a cubicle that's going to make a 50% difference. Mm -hmm. And so I have to rethink this completely. And, um, and that was the turning point. And then that became the, um, the resolve system. If I may, you should stop me because I can just talk <laughs> no, about this. Please. This is great. <laughs> I was going to, I was going to actually dive into what, what the resolve system is, if you could describe it. Yes. So the resolve system is, um, my metaphor for it was, a state set. And the idea there is, you know, when we work, it's we perform. And so I thought work is like a performance. And where else does that happen? It happens on a stage and um, state sets are very efficient. They're easy to change and they adapt to different plays. And so that metaphor really carried our thinking in Resolve in creating a system that's incredibly lightweight, incredibly adaptive to different kind of corporations and characters of corporations, and it's designed for the performance of work. And furthermore, its geometry is different from a cubicle. Most cubicles are 90 degrees, yet Resolve is based on 120 degree geometry for two reasons. One is 120 degrees are, it's what we see in nature. Nature grows in 120 degrees, so it's the most efficient structure you can create. If you look at honeycombs, they are made up of 120 degree angles. And um, it also is the angle that 
if you want to embrace somebody and you want to give them a big hug, you open up your arms, that is 120 degrees. So when you sit in a 120 degree corner, it really feels like you're welcomed within that corner and very different from sitting in a 90 degree corner. So those were the... Um, the key differentiators and uh, and it grew from uh, these columns that are supported in 120 degree geometry so when you look at a plan view of resolve office it looks like a honeycomb and it's beautiful that's fantastic i'm gonna have to uh do a google search uh after this yes. and, and check out some of that uh work i'm sure it's 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 beautiful uh, so Aisha, if I'm not mistaken, when the global financial crisis hit, many of your clients took their projects in-house, leaving you with a lot of time on your hands. What did this space allow you to give birth to? <laughs> I love how you put it as giving birth to because <laughs> it was super painful. <laughs> it's, uh, you know... We were so used to working with these great clients and doing great work and being busy all the time that the um, Bibi, my partner and husband and I, um, we were this unit and, you know, we put all our eggs in one basket and um, and suddenly the the bottom of that basket fell off and and I was like, hold on one second, what just happened here? You know, you don't need us anymore. Um, it was a rude awakening. And, um, but like you said, that created a space and time um, that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And I was, in the beginning, I was really frustrated because I didn't know what to do with myself. And, you know, you understand um, when the work is client driven, you have deadlines, you have expectations, you have projects, you have a team. And without that, I um, didn't quite know how to uh, go forward um, on my own. And the uh, since we're talking about giving birth, um, the thing that made the difference is that I had a doula. So my doula was Leah Kaplan, who's one of my oldest and dearest friends and collaborators. And it was actually Leah who suggested that um, I could use this newfound time, um, albeit um, unwillingly, um, to think about how I think. And she told me, look, you think differently. So can you work on that? And that was like a lifeline to me. I thought, well, there's at least one person who still thinks I think differently and values that. Um, and that gave me the courage to almost have this journey into my head, into how I think and try to understand how I go from what I know to what I can imagine and what are the steps of that. And, and it was um, this very interesting journey, um, trying to catch myself in the process and then mapping that out and drawing it and writing about it, showing it to my friends. And then my friends would be like, wow, this looks so complicated. And I'd be like, why? It's so clear to me. And then, you know, it's simplifying it, trying to make it clearer, showing it to them. And it was um, almost a year long process. Uh, and at the end of that, I had um, my design process, deconstruction, reconstruction, um, kind of mapped out. 
Brilliant. And we're going to dive into that for the for the course of this um, podcast. Such an amazing process. I've got your book and I I often uh, pick it up and um, get my my bursts of perspective and um, and uh, inspiration from it. Thank um, you. And and the thing that I really loved in in your book uh, is you said if your life is your most important project, why not design it? Um, and also said that in your uh, fairly recent TEDx talk uh, that you delivered in Cannes um, this year. What do you think? stops people from designing the life they love? Oh, I'm so glad you asked me that because I think it will help me talk about what design is. I think what stops people from designing the life they love is that design is a process. And without the process, it's really hard to know where to start and how to move forward. So, um, what I've learned and then what I'm trying to teach through Design the Life You Love and my book is here is a process that is simple enough that anybody can do it. And here's how you can apply that process to your life. And by the way, this is the same process that we use with our clients and apply to designing multiple in various problems um, to come up with design strategy or products. But here it is, here's what it looks like if you design, if you apply it to your life. So um, short answer is what's missing for a lot of people is the process piece of it. And what I've learned is once you show people, non-designers, like everyday people, how to you know, what the process is, then they are extraordinarily creative. And to me, that's like the best thing to see happen in front of your eyes. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think it's not a lack of want. It's not a lack of, uh, you know, the the things that they dream of wanting or becoming. It's It's a matter of how. You know, a lot of people just simply don't know how. Um, so I'm, I'm glad you broke that down. So let's dive into the how. Um, can you share to us your design process that you've uh, mentioned? You've titled Deconstruction, Reconstruction. Perhaps a great opportunity uh, to take us through step by step. There's four steps, if I'm not mistaken, right? Exactly. So um, there's actually a, what I call a step zero, which is the warm up. Um, and I usually recommend a drawing, a quick drawing exercise, um, just to um, signal to your brain that you're going to do something creative. And but once you do that, um, the first step is deconstruction. So it's taking the whole apart to see what something is made up of. The second step is called the point of view. It's looking at those same pieces from a different perspective and intentionally shifting your point of view. And the third step is reconstruction. It's the other side of deconstruction. It's putting the pieces back together again, knowing you can't have everything. And then the fourth step is expression, giving it form. And so these four steps are really move you from um, seeing and understanding what you know to imagining what's possible and um, 
envisioning that. Brilliant. So there's a little warm up. I love that. Uh, it's uh, doing a little drawing, perhaps to to signal to the brain that uh, you're entering into this this creative, imaginative space, um, and then you go from there to step one on deconstructing, uh, taking the whole the whole thing, which is your life, and you're pulling it apart, right? And exactly, you're segmenting it, uh, and then you got step two point of view, um, seeing it differently. Um, how, how can we see it differently? As an example, well, my favorite example and one of the maybe most important steps to any creative process is gathering inspiration. And so, um, because what you're trying to do is, um, seeing, parts of your solution in different places. And that's kind of like uh, like a bee. You go from flower to flower and you gather inspiration. And the way you do that in life is I ask people to think about their heroes because I think in life it's other people who inspire us. And you, um, I think, think similarly. Um, so we could talk about that a little bit further down I ask people who in their life inspires them or has done something that has caught their attention and um, that serves as their inspiration. And, and then at the end, once they have a list of their heroes, I also ask them, what are some of the characteristics or qualities of your heroes? And they make a list of those. And then I say, great, well, now those qualities are actually your qualities. They are your values. And we need your values to be able to design your life and make the choices that are meaningful to you. So the heroes become an inspiration to remind you of what matters to you in life, your values. And then those values become your foundation and only then can you design and reconstruct your life because then um, you know how to make choices. Yeah, I love that exercise. And, and I completely agree around the values piece. Um, I often refer to those values as your compass. You know, if you don't know yes. who you are, then you don't know where you're going. Um, it's so true. And if, yeah. Ram, if I could just build on that, it, what I find in my life is that when the going gets hard, that's kind of when I get confused about my values because it feels like everything that I've been doing um, that I believed in um, somehow didn't work out. And um, in doing the hero's exercise in kind of reconnecting with my values, it's almost like resetting the compass. And it reminds me, no, my values are still valued and they're valid. Um, I just need to find a different way to apply them. Yes, that's perfect. And so step three, we've got, um, so, so from building this point of view and seeing all the parts that we've deconstructed differently um, and, and arming ourselves with, with reminding what essentially our, our to-be list, right? All these values that we want to be and embody. What then for reconstruction, when we put it back together, how do we, how would we put that? back together so let's say you know someone has they're in a crossroads super common 
whether they're embarking on this um, career path at the beginning, they might think of relocating, let's say, like what you did, or they are at the end of their, um, uh, you know, uh, their, their journey to the top. They're almost reaching that goal. They've established a very fruitful career and they kind of feel, mm, I want to try something new. So they've deconstructed their whole life from a career and professional point of view. They are seeing things differently and regathered and re, you know, realigned themselves with their values. Now, how how would they put that back together? <laughs> so, really putting something back together to be able to do that, you also need to understand that you can't have everything. Um, so. It's just like in design, there's always some compromise. And so what's key to reconstruction is knowing what matters to you and putting them at the top of your list and then being okay with some of the things that you won't be able to do. And the way you make peace with that is um, understanding that um, nothing in design is fixed. and you could change over time. So you could say, well, this is what I'm going to prototype and test for the next six months or for the next year. And through it, I'm going to learn it and refine it. And if it doesn't work, um, I'll try something else. And that really is the um, the spirit of reconstruction. Um, and it comes also from... Uh, you know, when I was at design school, um, I did my master's at Pratt and one of my favorite teachers was Rowena Reed. And she used, she taught us um, actually a process of how you can design in three dimensions. And she would say, you need to understand what's the dominant, what's the subdominant and what's the subordinate of your design. The dominant is the most important piece. Maybe it's the biggest piece, um, the most striking. The subdominant is the element that's a slightly smaller and that um, complements your dominant and your subordinate is a small piece that's kind of like holds everything in tension. And um, and if you can create those three pieces and hold them in tension in space, that's how you create a thing of beauty and um, a beautiful form. And so in a way, reconstruction is trying to do that with your life of understanding what's the dominant, subdominant and subordinate of my life and how can I hold them in tension and just with them create something beautiful. Oh, that's so good. So good. And it, and. In a way, would you say that would sort of link to hierarchy, you know, if we're talking about what's dominant, what's kind of subdominant and subordinate, is it is it almost like we're prioritizing what is most meaningful? Yes, it really is that. And together with that, accepting that some things need to go mm. <laughs> and that's that is the um reality of design and life that we don't have enough resources for everything not enough time not enough energy um, not enough money um, and so again 
I think accepting that is a big piece of it. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's those things that you give up that really make the design. And it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, it, it reminds me of that quote by uh, Antoine de Saint-Zupery, who said, perfection is achieved not when there is nothing more to add, but when there is nothing left to take away. Oh, beautiful. And and I think that's so important. You know, we at the beginning spoke about karate and it being this sort of uh, vehicle to carry a sense of being present. And, and I kind of mentioned about the restraint piece um when we think about designing our life and and as as you know more than anyone um Aisha you know it is a lot to do with what not to include or or what to remove yes and and ram there's a little little trick though <laughs> please yes um the, the the magician's trick the trick is if you can make two things coexist and um, this is called dichotomy resolution. Often what we want and what we need oppose each other. And if you can make those things coexist, then you're actually uh, expanding your, instead of limiting, you're in, in, within that choice, you're expanding the possibilities. So, um, so I'll give you an example. Um, you know, my, one of my biggest, um, kind of things that I give up is that I have no time for my friends and my friends know this because I travel and I work hard and then, you know, I have a family, uh, my kids are still young. And so, um, something has to go and it's my friends that, that go basically. <laughs> um, so my little trick is I try to work with my friends and I try to become friends with people I work with. And so then you get the best of both worlds and it's kind of like having your cake and eating it too. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I see my friends and we talk shop and then we talk family or, you know, and, uh, and that, that's a luxury. So, but that, that, those kinds of tricks that you can um, find I think, give you just a little bit more. Yes, you have to limit, you, you can't have everything, but sometimes it's like two birds with one stone. Hmm. And, and, you know, you mentioned the space between the intersection of what you want and what you need. Uh, easier said than done, of course, and this is a process um, and, and, you know, it will take time to go through these steps. Um for sure. And, and, you know, it's not something that you just arrive at that magic sort of ingredients, right? It's, it's, it's going to take some time. And as you said, it's going to take some, some testing and iterating as any design um, project goes as well. Absolutely. Um, now the fourth Asia is expression. You, you mentioned expression. Um, yes. How, how do you advise us to give it form these these new reconstructed um, pieces and elements that that form the life that we want to uh, to create for ourselves. So the if you were to look at a reconstruction map, it's kind of like um, a list of words of ingredients that 
are the um, ingredients of the life you love. So giving it form is almost like taking those ingredients and making food with them. You have to combine them and you have to, uh, out of them, uh, create a story. And how can you do that? You know, there could be many different ways, but um, a to-do list is one. You know, once you know, kind of, these are the ingredients of my life. Um, here are the things I need to do to get from here to there. Um, you can write a letter that explains how you deconstructed your life um, and then what your values are through your heroes and then what are the um, the pieces of your reconstruction, the ingredients. And with that, what are you planning to do? And like write a longhand letter to yourself or to a friend or to your child uh, or your partner. Um, some people write poetry. Some people write a manifesto uh, about the life they love. And drawing it out is also a great way because visualizing is an incredibly powerful tool. So mapping it out as, um, as a drawing, it doesn't have to be beautiful, but you know, maybe you draw out uh, a new location or um, some new people or a, a new element in your life or a combination of elements of your life. And um, there's one drawing that I'm, actually getting people to do which is to draw yourself like a stick figure or like a cookie dough man uh, or a ginger man you know a ginger cookie man um, or woman but then to grow out of that uh, in kind of rings um, from here to let's say the next 10 20 years and in each of those rings to map out small and large projects that you want to do. And it almost becomes like your life map with you at the center. And you realize that you don't have to realize everything all at the same time. They can take place in different time zones. Yeah, it's almost like uh, you are drawing yourself at the center. You're then putting all the big pieces around you. And then what are the things that are supporting those those pieces? Um, I love what you said in your book, um, that, um, what's most important to express yourself here. And, and, you know, we can, as you mentioned, do this in words, letters, poems, manifestos, you know, images, even creating a song or a dance or, or anything like that. But what you said was just most importantly, have fun and play. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, when we grow older, it almost seems it's like that whole thing about, you know, if you ask four-year-old kids, you know, what they want to be or what they want to do, they just think of the craziest, most absurd things and they have no limitation to their imagination. And then you take that same question to, let's say, uh, a bunch of 40, 50-year-olds and then it's like, no, no, that's not possible, you know? <laughs> right. And so I think it's important to do this to literally draw it out and to really um, map out and express through something as simple as pencil to paper. I mean, that's what we did when we were kids, right? You know, who didn't pick up a crayon or a pencil and, and, and just draw without any 
rules. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, drawing is a language that we all learn as kids. And then we get very um, self-conscious about it. And But there is something incredibly powerful about visualizing something, which I think is the power of design. If you can visualize a chair, you can make it happen. If you can visualize a piece of cutlery, you're so much closer to making it happen. And you can explain it to somebody else, which is really important because you need collaborators. And it's the same thing with your life. If you can visualize your life, um, it's different than writing about it. And if you can do both, it's even more powerful because the drawing will inform the writing and the writing will inform the drawing. And together, they truly, it's one plus one equals three. And now you have tools with which you can go and explain your design to somebody else, somebody in your life, and say, I need your help. Let's collaborate. Yeah. And you enlist them because design is also a collaboration and um, you need other people to realize the life you love. I highly recommend listeners check out Aisha's book, uh, Design the Life You Love. It's all in there. And, and at the back, I love this. She's written, No Prior Creative Experience Necessary. Um, because it is <laughs> yes. a book you'll find you'll constantly refer to. So that hopefully gives a bit of an appetizer for the listeners. Um, now, what does designing a meaningful future mean to you? It means living an original life. So it's really about instead of letting life come at you, how can we go at life um, with intention mm. and and create our own roadmap. And so one of the things that having kids, um, so I have two daughters, they're now 12 and 13, um, and having them made me realize that um, today there are no roadmaps for how to have a good life. and. I grew up with a roadmap, um, which was, you know, you go to school, you work hard, you, um, you get a job, you work hard, you get married, you have kids, you have a good life. And uh, all of that is now um, upended. There's no one good way to have your life. And in having kids made me realize this even more. And I thought, what am I going to give my kids? What am I going to teach them? And so my hope is that I can teach them and I can teach you and I can show others that, um, well, actually you can create your own roadmap. And that's the greatest opportunity that maybe with the um, kind of breakdown of um, traditions and rules and kind of standard ways of doing things, our opportunity is we can make our own rules and create our own roadmaps. And so that that is the, um, mm. that's the design part of it. And here's a process to do it with. And then, and that helps us imagine a meaningful future. You mentioned uh, once that designers think differently. Um, can you unpack that statement a little more, uh, perhaps give a reflection on what you'd like designers to do more of 
You know, I often think that designers really do think differently because of things like this, the process of design thinking. How how should we, what would you love for designers to to utilize that ability um, of, of design thinking or problem solving? What, where would you like them to expand and utilize that, that skill set um, towards that you feel may not be being utilized to its full potential, you know, yet? I love how you put that. So beyond doing it ourselves, how can we um, do more of and maybe um, bring other people along with us? So how we think differently is, first of all, we think with empathy. And so we can teach other people how to have empathy and empathy is being able to feel other people's pain. Um, and when you can do that, uh, you're empowered to find solutions for them. Um, then we are optimists, no matter how hard the problem we think we're going to come up with a better solution. And that sounds kind of, um, and soft, but you wouldn't believe the importance of optimism in problem solving that um, you it's hard, but you're going to come up with a better way. And, um, and it really gives people hope. Um, and with it, you know, having an open mind um, and knowing that sometimes the best answers come from the worst places. And the open mind is about asking, what if? And why not? And I love those questions and um, and not being weighted down by our preconceptions or what has come before us. Um, and maybe the one other piece is to think um, collaboratively. Um, as designers, we love to collaborate with different disciplines because I think we somehow understood ahead of the game that these days no one person can come up with a solution things have gone really complicated and um you know the the problems are much stickier than they used to be so um collaborating and building on each other's ideas um is what we do well and we're also great learners. So we learn, we listen to other people, and we synthesize that information. These are things that I think help us think differently. And and that's why this idea of design thinking or thinking like a designer is so powerful. It doesn't mean that it you can design um products or you can design experiences or you're going to use this process to become suddenly a great UX designer because those things still um, require a great deal of experience and expertise. But we, what you're going to do is you're going to learn to think creatively um, and use a process to do it. So it's not haphazard. Um, it's quite intentional. Yeah, that's really um, something that I am insanely passionate about, exercising the the empathy muscle in particular. Um, one thing that I have done myself, um, taken from uh, 
the renowned uh, Tim Ferriss, he speaks a lot about voluntarily um, putting yourself in uncomfortable situations. So voluntary discomfort. And what you find are a few things, but um, one of them is that what you feared isn't as potentially as, as bad as you thought. And secondly, you reach a point of empathy. So an example is um, he might um, he might live on um, and a uh, side note here, obviously, um, as long as this doesn't jeopardize any other um, aspects of your life um, too much, but uh, living on you know less than two dollars a day, let's say, and also sleeping on the floor um, and not changing your clothes for a whole week. And <laughs> it's 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 pretty absurd in a way, but then again, it's not so absurd in that there are so many people out there that that have this life. Another one that came to mind was um, at a recent event I went to, we were asked to change shoes with the person next to us. And some people got high heels. <laughs> some people <laughs> got super large shoes. And some people got, you know, all sorts of footwear. But um, the idea is that literally putting yourself in the shoes of someone else and, and you know, seeing seeing how um, they live in, in that way. Um, so there's so many ways to gather empathy. And, and I'm always finding um, ways. And I love how you put it that you're in a way understanding um, that person's point of view and and suffering and pain, as you said. Um, so yeah, hugely important. You know, I think um, for somebody's delight and joy, uh, I don't think that empathy is only about suffering and pain. Um, it could be a whole range of emotions. It's just that it um, somebody else is appreciating them or is going through them. And, um, and like you said, there are different tools that you can use to build empathy. And I love the shoe story, you know, um, in one of them that I really love these days is co-designing with end users. And so not only kind of observing them and trying to understand what they're going through, but then um, kind of thinking creatively with them and then gleaning into who they are, how they think um, through their ideas and in um, realizing that um, people, when you co-design with end users, they're all about life. You know, um, we're we're the ones that are stuck in the kind of product land of like, how do you like this handle? And um, and they're on the other side thinking about life and you know, how can I teach my um, teenager son how to do something? You know, laundry, let's say, or um, how can I uh, travel? more lightly and it's it's just uh it's been a huge learning for me i guess what um i'm trying to articulate is that empathy is really understanding immersing your yourself in the life of someone yeah agreed it is both ends of the spectrum um the not necessarily 
focus on pain, but um, for sure the delight piece. So on on the on that note, what are some ways do you think that we can be more playful? Um, and I preface the question for some listeners who may feel that their circumstances may make it difficult to to do so. Yes, this is. Um, I really appreciate your prefacing that because I think it will help me talk about the playful part um, a little bit more um, realistically. The playful part is really about asking people to uh, remember, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, when, when you're a kid, when you're four or five years old, you do things and you don't judge them. You just do it. And really the being playful in design is about a different way of saying no judgment. Um, we don't know something until we try it. So how about we learn by doing it, learn by trying something. And so um, in a way, how can we think without our preconceptions because all our adult life is programmed to learn how to do things a certain way and that's full of preconceptions and i i see this with myself and with my kids like here's how you hold a fork and here's where you put your napkin and here's how you do your hair before you go to school and on and on and on so there is this automation of this is how you live your life and to free yourself of some of those things and um, to think without those um, preconceptions, um, that's the playful part. And it doesn't mean that you're not taking your life seriously. It simply means that you're not going to judge your ideas and you're going to try them on for size. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I can just almost feel the the majority of the listeners almost um and, and something that I can um certainly um you know see myself getting stuck in in a way is that the life of busy preoccupied by what we refer to as you know the necessities um puts playfulness in the luxury bucket a lot of the times let's be honest you know it's not like we have the luxury of just running outside in the rain or um, grabbing that, you know, soccer ball and kicking it around with your mates or your friends. Playfulness is almost not necessarily the, it's not necessarily an act, but a mindset of, yes. of as you've just defined, not, not sort of judging uh, yourself or or the the thing it's being playful with ideas hmm. and doing that freely and then it's your ideas you can still pick and choose for sure a few more questions for you Aisha uh, a question i ask most of my guests here is if you could travel back in time for 30 seconds and speak to your junior self perhaps the Aisha finishing high school what would you tell her <laughs> That would be so funny if I could do that. Um, <laughs> I would tell her, don't worry, 
you're going to get to New York City. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yeah. And that's that was always a dream of yours, wasn't it? I watched the video that was um, created by Herman Miller. It's on YouTube. I highly recommend everyone watches it. Yes. The Why, why Design. Yeah. Why Design video. Yes. What? Cool. What's the love of the New York, New York City? Uh, and you always were drawn to it, weren't you? Yes, and I, Ram, I don't know why. Uh, it's something that I felt in my kind of, I, I don't know, kind of this attraction to like, some people want to go to the moon. I want to go to New York. Mm. And uh, and I think when I was finishing high school, my parents felt I was too young to leave my country. And they said, well, you know, go to university um, in Turkey. And I felt like, I want to go to New York. <laughs> and, um, but I went to university and then, um, which actually turned out to be great, you know, um, I was probably too young to come to New York, and um, I also met some of my best friends in um, when I studied design uh, for my undergraduate. So, um, but then after that, I got a Fulbright scholarship, and I came to New York. It was like there was no stopping me, and I've always felt this attraction to New York that even when I went to Japan or I lived in France for a while, it's, there's like a rubber band between New York and I, and it just pulls me back. <laughs> it pulls me back. I've, I've definitely got to uh, say hello next time I'm there. I, I went to the States. Um, I've been to the States rather four times in the last 12 months. You have? Yeah. Yes. Come on over. F fifth time. Fifth right. time, fifth time, <laughs> gotta gotta make a trip uh, for sure. And and I mean, each to their own. Everyone, I'm sure, has a has a love affair with a city. Um, and New York would certainly be at the top of my list too. I think for me, it's just the the diversity of of people of culture. You can turn a corner and there's just something new all the time. It's surprising. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it has so much charm, yet it's got so much grit and grind. I love it. Um, so what's next for you, Aisha, with everything you're involved in for um, the rest of the year? We're coming to a close soon and uh, next year, 2018. What's what's going on? Uh, what's going on? So it, <laughs> we have some exciting projects. I have uh, a new project, a uh, new system with Herman Miller coming out uh, in 2018. We've been working on it for four years. <gasps> Whoa. So I'm really excited uh, for it to come out uh, and share it with everyone. Uh, we have a Design the Life You Love online course that's coming out with um, 42 courses. Um, that's been a great journey and it allows us to um, share Design the Life You Love um, through a new platform. So that's really exciting. And um, we're also working on Design the Work You Love, which is kind of like Design the Life You Love, but for organizations. And the idea of using deconstruction, reconstruction, and design process to increase your instances of doing what you love. And, and we think that's really valuable to organizations. They don't always recognize it, but if you can 
if your people can do the work they love, um, you know, you will get better performances, you will get better results. And so we're working on, um, we've already started um, doing it, but we're working on making that um, a compliment to design the life you love. That's fantastic. So there's the Herman Miller project. When When's that out? That's going to be out at uh, Neocon in Chicago, which is June 2018. That's the big show of office systems and office products. Amazing. And the online course for Design the Life You Love? The online course is uh, it's about to be released as um, a beta version in the next week or two. Great. And, and what are we expecting there? Is it a video with, um, with some course material and then you revisit and you, you continue on? Is that how it works? You mentioned 42 courses. Is that modules? 42 courses. Yeah. It's the, that's the name of the, um, our producers who are um, launching the online course. Oh, right. And okay. it's 42courses.com. And what's really great about it is we get to do things that we cannot do in a book. So like you said, there are films, um, talking heads, Aisha, you know, explaining how something is, um, you know, how you deconstruct your life and then links to things that I find inspirational or my team found inspirational. And then it also fills in some of the blanks for you. So you get a little bit like um, help or it, the course gives you um, a, a pre-made list to inspire you and then you can add your own to it and then it fills in some of the blanks for example if you deconstructed a certain way or if you did your values and heroes a certain way some of those answers can feed in your reconstruction and your expression so it's playful in that way and it's almost like you you get a helping hand that's fantastic well, um, Aisha, I'm sure loads of listeners have plenty to think about and um, get their teeth stuck into and uh, perhaps even want to get in touch with you. Uh, so how can listeners get in touch with you online? I would love for your listeners to get in touch with me and you can do that through Twitter, which um, my Twitter handle is at Aisha Birselsek, so A Y S E. B-I-R-S-E-L-S-E-C-K. And you can also connect with me on Facebook and Instagram on Design the Life You Love. Amazing. And I would love to hear from them. Fantastic. Yes, please do get in touch with Aisha, um, everyone. Uh, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. Personally, it's very rare to connect with someone with so much grace and playfulness and humility with your accomplishments um, at your caliber. And I really do hope listeners dive into the wisdom of your book or your new course coming out. If even for a moment of finding a glimpse of that wonder and curiosity. Ram, thank you so much. It's been really my pleasure and um, you've completely flattered me. So the... <laughs> We should talk more often. Thank you. Amazing. Thanks, Aisha. You take care. Bye, Ram.
That's a wrap, Giants. Thank you so much for tuning in. Now, if you've been enjoying this podcast, it would really mean a lot to me if you leave a review on iTunes. The better the reviews, the more exposure, the more exposure, the more opportunity to reach compelling expert guests for the show for all of us to learn from. So I invite you to head to giantthinkers.com slash podcast review. A teaser for our next guest. He is the co-founder and CEO of a global fashion, lifestyle, and accessory brand for millennials that has sold over 1.5 million products. After almost failing out of high school and dropping out of college, he started his brand at age 22 while he was $20,000 in debt. Four years later, his brand has grown to more than $80 million in revenue and 4 million social followers. I'm a huge fan of their products, so look out for that on the next episode. Briefly, before you race off, I highly recommend you check out Treehouse. They are an online technology school offering courses in web design and coding from HTML, CSS, PHP to JavaScript, Python, and iOS in the space of web, mobile, and game development, taught by a team of in-house expert teachers. If you head to giantthinkers.com slash treehouse, they're giving the Giant Thinkers community a seven-day free trial so you can try it out with no commitment. On top of that, if you are happy with the trial and thereafter continue learning on Treehouse, let me know and I will personally give the first five students a one-hour Skype call coaching session each for free. So if you'd like to learn how to code, are interested in becoming a developer and are after the skills to get a job as one, pop over to giantthinkers.com slash treehouse. For any questions regarding the podcast or anything at all, the best way to reach me is on Snapchat or Instagram. Send me a message via my handle, the giant thinker. Lastly, I'll leave you with a quote that I loved from Aisha who said, sometimes the best answers come from the worst places. So be brave, live with intent, and I'll catch you on the next episode. 